lean in. You know, just give them another one. Lean in. Like, just lean into this. Whatever it is, if it's your problem, these problems that you think you have, lean into them. The program's there for you. There are people that are amazing in this program, like you. Like, there's rooms full of them, and, and they're just amazing. And if you ask for help, they will help you. And if they don't, they'll send you to someone who can. And if you just put the effort in and lean into it, whatever it is, you'll get the, you know, you'll get the solution in the rooms. So I just say, lean into it. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of TSP, the Share Podcast, and today I have a very special guest. Joseph W. Naus is joining us on the Share Podcast, Straight Pepper Diet. This is a book of sex addiction, alcohol addiction, alcohol abuse, absolute drunken debauchery at its absolute worst. What a privilege it was for me to do this interview. Just to give you a quick preview of upcoming attractions, Joseph was born in 1971. He graduated from Pepperdine Law, passed the bar in 1997, and he survived a hard, scrambled, impoverished childhood raised by his young mother, a heroin addict, turned shut-in depressive to become a respected lawyer. However, at age 32, his American dream became a nightmare when his own sex and alcohol addictions collided and exploded. Joseph's harrowing yet hope-filled memoir, Straight Pepper Diet, begins on the last day of his former life. Here is one of the famous opening lines of the book. On Tuesday, I was a respected civil trial lawyer making six figures. On Wednesday, I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed, and then it got worse. Joseph has spent the last 12 years reinventing himself, and due to a series of events that we will discuss in the interview, Joseph was disbarred and had to start all over again. This is an interview I've been dying to release. And for those of you who have not read Straight Pepper Diet, do yourself a favor. Pick this one up. It is absolutely a page turner. I personally downloaded it on Audible and listened to it every day on the way to work like a miniseries. So it's time to dive into Joseph's story. But first, a little share podcast news. Okay, guys, another quick reminder that... I will be at the Seattle International Narcotics Anonymous Convention this year, July 29th, 30th, and 31st, 2016. It will be held at the Seattle Airport Marriott, and I will be the main speaker on Friday night opening up the convention. If you go to the Share Podcast website, on the right-hand side of the website, you'll see a banner. It's a blue banner that says S-I-N-A-C 2016. Click on that banner. It'll send you to the page where you have information about room rates, about registering for the convention. Everything you need to know about attending the convention is right on that website. So again, I would love to meet you guys in person. If you can make it out there, would love to see you. Okay, guys, first of all, thanks so much for everyone who has helped support the Share Podcast. And for those of you listening who would like to know how you can help support the Share Podcast, let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, the most important one, which is absolutely free, is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. iTunes, single-handedly, is one of the most powerful ways for people to find the Share Podcast. 
So to make it easy for you guys, what I've done is I've put buttons on the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go there on the right-hand side. The very first button reads, subscribe on iTunes. Click on that button. It's going to send you directly to the iTunes podcast app. And from there, you'll click subscribe and then go to the section that says rate and review. And please leave us a five-star rating. There's no question about it. iTunes is one of the best ways for our listeners to find the Share Podcast, especially when they're searching for it on Google. If you don't have an iPhone, then go to Stitcher Radio. It's the banner right underneath the subscribe on iTunes. Click on that and do the exact same thing. Subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review. There's no question about it. This is the best way for you to show your support. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been clicking on the Amazon banner ad. Folks, for those of you wondering what's another fantastic way to support the show is by clicking on that banner before you shop on Amazon. You're going to shop on Amazon anyway. It's not going to cost you one penny more, and it kicks back some commission to the Share Podcast. We've already seen a dramatic increase in commission since we added the banner ad. So thanks again, guys. It's helping so much. And as far as being of service, you can also go to the website and click on the join the Facebook private group banner. It'll take you right to the Facebook private group where you can request to be added and do some service. There's newcomers in there that are posting daily, old timers sharing experience, strength, and hope. It's an absolutely beautiful way to contribute to your own recovery as well as to those in the community. So plug yourself in, Get into that private Facebook group. It's absolutely thriving. And again, it's a wonderful way for everyone to be of service. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to all of the listeners who have continued to give donations every month. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. And for those of you that would like to contribute and help grow and support the Share Podcast financially, you can go to the website, click on the Donate with PayPal button, and it'll take you to the page where you can make your donation. And for those of you that use SoberGrid or are looking for an app on their phone where you can find meetings, have a sobriety calculator, connect privately with members of your local recovery community, or when you travel, connect with members in recovery in order to find a meeting, then you might as well join the private alumni group for Share Podcast listeners. So go into the Sober Grid menu once you've registered. Scroll down to where it says alumni group, click on add group and type in S-H-A-I-R and the Share Podcast alumni group will pop right up. And for those of you who would like to know which are the most popular podcast episodes, there is a banner on the right-hand side of the page as you scroll down that says most popular podcast episodes. Click on that banner and it will take you to the page that features the most popular podcast episodes based on listener feedback and number of downloads. And for those of you who would like a list of all the books that have been recommended by our guests, go to the right-hand side of the website and click on the banner that says Recommended Books. It'll take you right to the page where we have a list of all the recommended books. And finally, I want to give credit to the Share Podcast team that is instrumental in producing the Share Podcast, Zinzi Gugu, and Evelyn E., who handle the audio editing for each podcast episode, Omar Hernandez, that does all the social media cover art, and Krista Wojo, who handles all of our social media marketing. Without this amazing team, 
There is no way I could have continued to produce the podcast every week. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do this without you. So let's dive into this week's episode. But first, a quick message from our sponsors. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Joseph, thanks for joining us. Howdy. Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on the show, buddy. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Excellent. Excellent. Me too. Folks, today we have a special treat. We have Joseph W. Naus joining us on the Share Podcast, the author of Straight Pepper Diet. Now, Joseph was recently featured as a guest on the Rich Roll Podcast. That's where I first heard him, and it was an amazing, mind-blowing story. And uh, in the first chapter, this is one of the verses you'll read where it says, On Tuesday, I was a respected civil trial lawyer making six figures. On Wednesday, I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed, charged with attempted murder, and then it got worse. So we're definitely in for a treat, folks. Uh, but first, I want to dive into Joseph's... Before we, drive, before we dive into Joseph's story, I just want to get to know, or our listeners to know, a little bit more about how things are today. You know, your daily routine, including recovery and book tours, whatever you've got going on right now. Uh, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm stoked to be here. You know, right now it's interesting because I'm 13 years off alcohol, you know, 13 years sober. And when I first got sober and, and even recently, I just really uh, do well when I have structure. I'm, I'm a list guy, you know. I'll, nice. I will literally, the night before, I'll write down a list like wake up at 8, 8.30 breakfast. Like I get real specific. But I've tried to let that go a little bit because right now my life is so uh, goes in so many different directions. I got a couple different businesses. I got the book. My mom right now has cancer, and so I'm, I've been driving out to see her a lot and dealing with that. And um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a golf fanatic, and that's part of my daily thing. And I'm you know, I got different meetings I go to, and sponsees that are doing different things. And so I'm 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 really like today is just a good example. You know, I got up at uh, eight o'clock. I didn't get a lot of sleep, so I didn't do much. I just got up at 8 o'clock. I went over to um, Golf Tech, which is this uh, technical golf instruction school where they use video and stuff, and I worked out there for an hour and a half. And then I drove about 100 miles to go visit my mom, who is in a hospice. And I was there with her. And you know, on the way out there, I listened to uh, The Power of Now, you know, to kind of ground myself before I got out there. And I hung out with my mom, which is rather difficult. Drove back here for 100 miles, and 
and uh, was exhausted, took a little nap, and uh, hung out with my fiance for a little bit, and then here I am with you. That's a yeah, full day, full day. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, you know, with with your mother, how long? Uh, when did she get diagnosed? How long? Uh, it's been about a year. She had state. She was diagnosed with stage four small cell uh, with metastasized to the brain. So it's a kind of a miracle she's been around this long because usually it's a couple months with that. Man, that is tough. Um, my father passed away at sixty-seven with cirrhosis of the liver, and. That was, you know, just a really, really, really tough year. I, like you, uh, spent a lot of time taking care of him and visiting him and, and seeing him and, and taking care of him in the hospital. I hit a ton of meetings in that time because it was really, really rough. How are you maintaining that your spiritual condition these days? Are you, are you hitting lots of meetings? Do you have a uh, spiritual ritual that, that you have on a regular basis? I, I try to meditate... Uh... 10 to 20 minutes every day. I, I like to do it in the morning, but quite frankly, it, it varies on when I do it. Uh, so that's part of it. I have a couple sponsees. Uh, and it's kind of nice because they're both in real different places in their sobriety. And I have a sponsor that I talk to. And uh, in fact, I just talked to him the other night, you know, and he was like, you know, you need to be calling your sponsees and talk to them. So that's how I do it. And, you know, it's really interesting. If, if you've been in the rooms a lot, like you have, you know that that's one of those things you hear over and over is people's stories of their of their parents passing yes. and how they were there and how they went through it and how hard it was and how they relied on the program. So I feel like I've got this primer, you know, I, I've heard it so many times and some of the stories are different. Some, you know, it's sudden, some of them they go and live with their parents and take care of them for a year or, you know, but it's because I'm in the program, it's not something new or it's not, I mean, it's new to me, but it's not an experience I haven't heard a lot about. Well, the good news is that because of the rooms, it's second nature. I know exactly what to do. And uh, I did. I, I lived with my dad for his last six months. So that was, wow. it was, man, the most difficult time in my life. And it was, as a matter of fact, I was, for a lot of it, he was at the UCLA Medical Center. So, oh. so I was in LA at the time. God, there's a meeting in Santa Monica that I was doing. Like, it's a very famous one. I forget the name of the place. But I mean, I was hitting that one like every day because it was by the hospital. So I'd have this routine where I would, you know, leave my my sister's house, go hit the meeting, spend the day with my dad, go home, you know, try and decompress, get up the next day and do the same thing. I, I had to have that uh, recovery connection. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, man, it, it's all the same. We all get through it. it. It's tough, but I mean, we're, we're Vikings. When yeah. you, when you get past this, man, you're just a Viking. All right. You, you, there's, there's absolutely nothing that I can't go through, um, and stay sober. I, I learned that during that, that period. So, um, man, I, I will pray for you and your mom, brother. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. So, um, Man, you said so. You got thirteen years, right? When's your anniversary date? Uh, it'll be thirteen on uh, July twenty-six. Nice. Oh, twenty-six, yeah. huh? Yeah. yeah. July twenty-six. I'm celebrating thirteen years. May twenty-six. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, like in a couple of weeks. Wow! Congrats. Yeah, I'm pumped, man. I'm pumped. It's very. I'm very excited. Um, so let's talk a little bit. You know, I mean, your story. There's a lot of addiction and, and different forms of addiction. Um, 
I always open up with how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs and how it, it made you feel. Okay. Um, I was a very late bloomer. You know, my mom was a heroin addict and my dad was out of the picture, but also had addiction issues. And so I had a really healthy fear of drugs. I was straight edge in high school, you know, Whoa, like I used to, man. you know, I used to, I used to wear the black X's on my hand, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, and I was very, you know, I remember listening to Minor Threat and being like, you know, anti-drugs, anti-alcohol, anti-everything. And, uh, you know, then I was in uh, high school and, and early college, I was a kickboxer. So I was really into health and I was a vegetarian. I'd read A Diet for a New America. And that's when I first went vegetarian way back in like 1987. And um, I, I stopped kickboxing because I was in college and was tired of getting kicked in the head. And, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to become a lawyer or go to college being kicked in the head over and over probably isn't a good, uh, no. a good thing. So I stopped that and, and I, you know, I had a few drinks here and there with one of my a lawyer mentor, just kind of like after work having a beer or something. But the first time I got wasted was when I was in New York for the first time. And it was like this just unbelievable experience. It was, I, Drank for the first time, smoked cigarettes for the first time, and cheated on my girlfriend for the first time, and my fiance at the time, different fiance obviously. And I was in New York. It was cold. The high rises, you know. I mean, it was like magical. And I, at that moment, I said to myself, like, this is the new best thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> all that hard work, you know, kickboxing and straight edge and vegetarianism and all that stuff. Uh, this is the new thing. It wasn't like I just immediately became an alcoholic. But in my head, I knew, like, this is the new best thing there is, you know? And oh, it was magical. It was absolutely <laughs> friggin' magical. How old were you? I was 21. Oh, or okay. No, was it 21 or 22? Yeah, I think it was my sophomore year of college. All right, all right. So yeah. the straight edge kept you uh, on the straight and narrow for a while. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The fear and the straight edge, yeah. Now, uh, so would you say that, because I know you're, you're in 12-step, um, but would you say that sex addiction is your primary addiction or, you know, which one of those would you say is your primary addiction? Well, it's weird. You know, it's like I actually listened to one of your earlier podcasts. and I thought you summed it up really brilliantly in that saying that, you know, addiction is addiction. We relate in different programs, but addiction is addiction. And so I kind of think of it as like if you were in a food program because you overate, you wouldn't have a chocolate program a pizza program, you know, and a cola program. You know? <laughs> so I kind of think of it that way. Now, with that, with saying that, it's really helpful to be able to relate to different things. So to answer your question, ironically, I, I kind of consider a nicotine to be my most hardcore addiction. It was the very last one that I was able to kick. Sex was kind of the most powerful one, but also the most risky. So alcohol was kind of my fallback. But as you know from my story, alcohol is what really did me in in the end. Yeah. It was kind of a try. But, but man, powerlessness, nicotine taught me powerlessness. Because when I quit the sex and the alcohol, I had the judge, the state bar, the LAPD, the probation department, uh, rehab, uh, the bail bondsman, the, you know, my law partner, I had everybody. There was no chance I was going to relapse. It would have been like putting a bullet to my head. But with the nicotine, you know, I'm just like... You know, like, this is all I have. You know, this is all I have. You know, and, uh, 
So <laughs> ironically, that is kind of the last thing I gave up. But, but you know, I, I kind of go to the mothership program as my main program now, you know. That answers the question. It does, and I, I love hearing that because, again, you know, we were just talking about, you know, how we don't promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program, and I even say that at the end of uh, the podcast episode. That's the disclosure. Uh, but I, you know, I initially got sober in NA and I remember my sponsor, he was like, you'll notice something in the literature. All right. It addresses addiction. It doesn't address cocaine. It doesn't address sex. It doesn't address food. It addresses addiction. And I'm addicted to everything, to more. If it feels good, I want it. And I want it in, you know, massive quantities, whatever that may be. And that's where uh, I learned to understand where all that manifestation came from. You know, right. understanding that I am an, an addict and I'm trying to fill this void. And if I stop using one thing, then I'm just going to gravitate to the next thing that makes me feel better. All right. And then once I get rid of that, I'm just going to gravitate to the next. So it's almost like I got to take this, you know, 12 headed monster and chop all of its heads off right get to get to the base of it all as we as we peel it all back so yes i i agree a hundred percent at some point or another if we don't address the fact that if we don't address the actual addiction we are doomed to repeat you know our history yeah you know just to say something about narcotics anonymous that i always loved was that i remember this from being in rehab and i have friends who are in that program now and I really love that they say, you know, in their preamble or I don't know, maybe it's the preamble that I hear. I don't know where it comes from, but it says uh, alcohol is a drug, period. Yeah. And, you know, that's the truth. Alcohol is a drug, period. Just because it's liquid and it happens to be a little older than some of the other drugs, it doesn't. It's, it's a drug, period. And that's, a, that's it's as simple as that. And I, I totally agree with the, the way that they structure their program. Even their book is a little sometimes a little more uh, readable <laughs> sometimes, you know. <laughs> So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of of that. I am too. Program. I I am too. But folks, uh, I, again, I was very excited when when I found out that Joseph was going to be on the show uh, because his story is riddled with the sex addiction. The thing is that as I was listening to Joseph share a story on the other podcast on Rich Rolls, I just remember driving. And listening to it and thinking, it's terrifying how much I can relate to this story. Like we'd get to certain parts and I go, yep, I can relate. The mindset is just uncanny. It's, it's the same thing, man, this, this obsession that drives you. So I definitely want to get into that. So I think it's time for me to turn this show over to you, Joseph. Uh, I want you to share your story with us. The battle with drugs, alcohol, and sex the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom and finally your journey into recovery up until today. Don't worry, Joseph. I'm right there with you, buddy. So take it away. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot to cover, um, <laughs> but I'll do it. Um, so, you know, like I said, I was, my mom was a heroin addict. I grew up really, really poor. We grew up in a, on welfare in uh, rough neighborhoods. I was usually the only white boy in the neighborhood. And as I kind of often say, you know, there was two ways you could go with me. I was, a, I was an only child and, and uh, you either kind of became a wimp or you became super tough. And when I was a kid, I became a wimp. 
And so I stayed out of trouble and we were in a lot of areas where there was a lot of gangs and stuff and, and just bullies. And I just stayed by myself. And, and, uh, that's how I kind of coped when I was a kid. And it was, you know, I had a real rough childhood, very isolated, a lot of poverty. And, um, my mom was a heroin addict, but she went on methadone after we got, uh, she got picked up, uh, for scoring methadone. I mean, scoring heroin with me in the car. Oh. And so we ended up uh, moving to Riverside to be very close to uh, the methadone clinic, which was at, well, closer to Casablanca, which is an area where she used to score heroin. So, you know, like most heroin addicts, I, I believe, I'm not sure, I was, I was only eight years old or yeah, eight years old, but I think she kind of battled with methadone and heroin back and forth. But eventually she got off. And uh, actually some of my finest memories are going to the methadone clinic when, with my mom when I was a kid, you know. We would, it was kind of fun. It was a little, it was a little adventure, you know? And uh, I remember they would give me the, the tang and, uh, you know, they would give her the pills or whatever. The meth, I don't even know what methadone is. I think it's just a pill form. And it's a, yeah, it's a pill. Yeah. And then they would give her that in a Dixie cup and they would give me tang. And, uh, you know, I liked it because my mom was awake when she was there and act, she was just gone and asleep all the time. Right. But then eventually she just became a shut-in depressive and, and really things got really rough and she was just asleep all the time, basically. She didn't work. And, and that was when things got really rough. But, you know, uh, I kind of carried on. I did have some examples, you know. I think we're really lucky in life, even if we have rough circumstances, to have someone in our life, whether it's an uncle or an aunt or whatever, who's an example of what can happen in life, you know. It's kind of like I always say, like, uh, you know, like when, they, when Bannister broke the four-minute mile, Everybody broke it after that, you know? Right. And it's kind of like that. It's like nobody thought you could do it until then. Once he did it, everybody did it. Now you go to the Olympics and people are running 330s, you know? And it's kind of like that. Like once you see something. So I had an aunt and uncle, a couple aunts and uncles who would pick me up every once in a while and take me away for the weekend. And I kind of saw their lives and I saw that, you know, like, wow, that's what a normal life looks like. Like they're not constantly in fear and of lack of money and the education helps. So I always had this idea that education was a thing. So anyways, to fast forward, I did really well in, in school and uh, in high school, and I got into uh, Cal State, and I did really well in Cal State, and I, I was an athlete. I was straight edge in high school and worked a job and a sporting goods store, and um, I didn't toy with addiction. The only, probably the first addictive experience I ever had, as I just, I, I had a 976 habit that got cut off real quick. I used to call the 976 surf line, and, and one time I decided to call one of the non-surf lines, and like I called it, and it was like some you know sex worker type of thing, and oh. you call it, and they tell you that, and like it was an instant thing. Like I hung up, I was like, oh my god, that's going to show up on the phone bill. I'll lie about it. I'll tell her that it was just a misdial, and then five minutes later, I did it again, and again, and again, and again, and eventually I had like an $800 phone bill. <laughs> And I had to pretend that I was calling as my dad and using a deep voice and telling them that I had, that his son had did this and that they needed to cut it down and, that, and they put a block on it. So that was like my first addictive experience. And it was like, it was like a little encapsulated, like week period of this thing I did that caused an immense bit of pleasure that I knew I shouldn't do that was going to cause an amazing amount of wreckage and cost. And yet I could not stop doing it over and over and over. I totally remember bringing like the old style phone into my room, like with the cord and everything. (laughs) Just absolute insanity. But I, you know, I put the block on the phone as my fake dad, you know, 
<laughs> so and then what I'm trying to picture wait 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 <laughs> I'm getting a picture of this shit because I never I was terrified of that I, I you know when I was a kid I'd seen those 800 numbers and I'm like who would call that and then you're holding the phone like how do you hold the phone and have phone sex at the same time That's why you have hands. That's yeah why well you have I hear hands, you man though. you gotta be tactical you know what I'm saying <laughs> oh man and just like yeah. And yeah, here's another thing, too, because here, here's the beauty of it, right? In your mind, the only thing you're thinking about is how do I get away with this shit or how can I make this continue? But I've got this bill. There's no way for me to get away with it. Now, what if there was no phone bill? Imagine, oh. I mean, what kind of, who knows what story you'd be telling today? If, if, and how old were you when that, when you discovered that? Uh, I was a junior in, in high school, so 16, 17, I think. Exactly. So that would put you, you know, that it's a very kind of societal thing you just said, or, you know, real common on society right now, because that's exactly what kids right now of 17 years old are doing. Because not only do they have unlimited access to that stuff, they have it on video. Yes. That's the internet, you know? I mean, they, I, I just saw recently on Time Magazine did a big piece on that. It was like really harmful to society having that kind of access for teenagers to uh, pornography. But anyways, that goes into a whole, whole, other, whole other side <laughs> note. Sorry about that. So that was my first uh, for, that was my first run into addiction. I, that was always in my head, and that, that was way before I picked up alcohol or before I smoked. Uh, you know, I, had a, I, had a, I got uh, engaged when I was 18. I was in college. I did well in high school. And uh, my mom was uh, in, abusive, in an abusive relationship, and a bunch of my buddies from high school basically showed up at my mom's apartment at 6 in the morning and gathered her and grabbed all her stuff and moved her out uh, from the guy that she was being abused by that we lived with. And uh, so then, so my fiance's family took me in at that point because I was, I didn't know where to go. You know, I just, I just started college and I was still living at home. Wow. And my mom just kind of started a new life. So I'm here living and my first, my fiance was a daughter. She's a cheerleader, daughter of a Baptist preacher. Great guy, wonderful guy and totally took me in. And, and I, I started um, uh, doing addictive sexual things there. I, I started uh, going to prostitutes. I started going to massage parlors, and I also started doing uh, uh, video porn. This was before um, internet porn, and you know I do the whole go to the video store in this s- sketchy little closet area and you know, <laughs> wait till everybody's out of the store. I mean, you talk about embarrassing and just like oh god. I mean, I even like buying a pack of cigarettes. It makes me feel like a shithead. <laughs> going and buying a you know porn with these embarrassing names and stuff and then you know it was terrible and I would go in watch the watch it on video and then you know when no one's home and then maybe someone shows up and you're scattered putting away everything and hiding the video you know I went through that and and I also had you know the ultimate kind of rush of all this the sex addiction for me was the actual picking up prostitutes when I was a kid and we lived in these really bad areas you would see these prostitutes on University Avenue and Riverside and um, baseline in San Bernardino, and um, even when I was a kid, I, I remember in the back of my head, kind of getting a little rush from seeing them. Knowing I didn't even know exactly what it was, but I knew something was going on. So that became a thing. I did that for a while, but I was smart enough to know like that that was going to go south quick. And uh, what was really a breaking point for that was that I had um, 
read in the newspaper that a city council guy from Lake Elsinore had actually been busted picking up prostitutes in the exact same spot that I was in. Mm. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. So that's when I started going to massage parlors. And that was kind of my drug of choice with, with regards to the sex addiction because it was, it was a rush. It was very kept in tight. They run those places like a friggin' franchise, you know, very tightly run and expensive, but, uh, you know, just something I did and I did more and more and more money I made, the more I did them. And that was something that I did for God from age of 18 to the age of 33, long time, a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're almost like a 15-year run right there. Pretty yeah. close, yeah. That's a lot of money at 100 bucks a pop. Yep. Yeah. Damn, I never thought about it like that. I could have had a cocaine addiction. <laughs> it's a, dude, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know? And that little rumbling in your stomach, you know what I mean? Uh, it's just like when you're calling the dope guy. Yeah. You know, oh, you're, people you're, would describe the heroin, you know, the, 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 how you get heroin, the weight for it, the get it. You know, the whole thing, it was very similar to that. You know, you go and it's very sketchy and you park in the back and you go to the front and they let you into this room. And, you know, it's, it's, it was very, uh, it had that anticipation rush for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was part of that. I mean, that was just much of it as the, as the sex itself. And then so anyway, I did that. And uh, then I just, and then the, the first time I drank uh, uh, alcoholically, and started smoking was when I went to New York. When I was in college, I was on the Model United Nations team. This is kind of the dichotomy that I was living. I was, you know, on appearances was that I was kind of living the American dream. I was this really poor kid with a mom who's a heroin addict, heroin addict, and I was on, you know, I had straight A's. I was Model United Nations. I was an amateur kickboxer. I had a beautiful fiance, cheerleader. You know, things were looking good. And yet I had this addiction that was like, could have just blown up everything. I was risking everything for this crazy addiction. But then I discovered alcohol. And like I said, that was like, I suddenly realized that, oh man, that's like the new best thing. So then it was like, you know, you got cigarettes, they're kind of like a maintenance thing. Then you got the the sex stuff, which is just like the shot of heroin. And then you have the alcohol, which is kind of like the constant it's better than cigarettes, not quite as good as the sex, but good, especially that first three or four drinks. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you get that warm feeling. And yeah. You feel like you're the most popular guy in the room and you just discovered it, that you're the, you know, you look like Tom Cruise, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and everyone else thinks it too. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I had a, I graduated from uh, college. I broke up with my fiance and, uh, Went to Pepperdine, uh, got into Pepperdine Law School. Hey, real quick, before you move on from there, was there anything yeah. significant in the breakup? Did, did any part of your addiction have to do with the breakup or was just something that you guys just grew apart? No, uh, no, it definitely was part of the addiction. I mean, I had, uh, I just had such, I, I, I thought of it at the time as depression, but I realized now it was like, it was just this constant horrible guilt because yeah. I was doing other things besides for just the, the massage parlors, I was cheating. I, I worked at a gym and like I would pick up girls from the gym and stuff and she was an aerobics instructor there so she would know these girls and, and at one point they started calling the house and or one of them started calling the house and you just have this guilt of just like, you know, you're just like, how I'm doing this, I'm, it's just horrible and then you think it's maybe it's her, like, you know, it's her fault. She's not doing what she needs to be doing. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be having sex with prostitutes and one night stands and 
and massage parlors if she was, you know, doing something different. So you kind of had an excuse of like, ah, uh, it's just not working out. And I found another girlfriend and moved on from there and, and uh, started over at Pepperdine Law. Got it. Got it. Okay. And at Pepperdine, it was it was just a it was just this horrible thing at Pepperdine because I loved law. I, I loved it. It was what I wanted to be for a long time. I wanted to be a lawyer. I had been a men- my mentor was a very successful trial lawyer that I was really lucky to, to be involved with. And yet I couldn't get together for more than a few days at a time. Like I couldn't just be consistent. And when you're in law school or medical school or, you know, it's really competitive environments, it's not good enough to be good for a, three days out of a week. You got to be good six or seven days out of a week yep. to kick ass. And it just, and I, so I would, I was in the middle of the class and, and I just was, I would get so depressed. It would be three days of good studying where I'd be like, okay, I'm going to work out. I'm going to eat right. I'm not going to drink or not have sex with one of the other students I shouldn't be having sex with and, and watching porn and all that stuff. And I do really well. And then I, you know, I didn't know it was a relapse, but it was basically like a relapse. And I would go back into this depression of drinking all the time and not showing up to class. And, and I literally did that for three years of just like, I mean, I got suicidal towards the end. I remember I took the bar, passed it, and then um, I was just like suicidal. I was just, I was so, I just feel like there's nothing, I hope that people that are listening to this can relate because no matter what their addiction is, there is just nothing worse in my mind than having principles that you believe in yourself vehemently and not meeting those principles. Yeah. So basically lying to yourself over and over and over and again to the point where you say it to yourself and you laugh at yourself, you know? <laughs> and that's what I was. I was just like, yeah, you're not going to do this. Ha, ha, ha. And then if you can't meet your promises, then what's, what's the point? Like, it was terrible. Oh, man. And I, lived, and I lived this lifestyle of because of my upbringing of like you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. And that works great in finances. That works great in professions. That works great in sports. But it doesn't work with a damn in recovery or in addiction. It just puts you deeper and deeper into the grave, you know. And that's what I was experiencing. Anyway, so I passed the bar and I got a job as a lawyer. And, um, you know, it was the same thing. I would kick ass for a little while and then I would go on benders and not show up to work. And then I would do well and I'd go back and forth, you know. And I was good enough that I could keep the job and then I would mess up and then you know and I was still doing everything that I was doing before I was still doing the prostitutes I was cheating on my girlfriends I was smoking cigarettes like a crazy I was drinking all the time and I I I got into the habit of having bartender clients I realized that people who owned bars were not only good because they could get me free drinks and I could party with them but also they were good clients because they always had legal issues at one time in Oceanside I lived in Oceanside California after I moved from Pepperdine right uh, Malibu. I had the three biggest bars in town. I was I represented all of them. <laughs> so at one point they actually had, was there was a lawsuit between two of them and I and I had to conflict out of it because I couldn't represent both of them obviously. So I kept on failing up. I would I would be in a law firm and it would get to the point where I wasn't going to be able to hang on any longer because I was screwing up too much, drinking and carousing. And then I would quit and go get a better job and a better job. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
So when I was in Riverside, I joined, I, I joined this firm, Thompson & Colgate, which is a really prestigious old firm uh, that I had worked there. And I kicked ass for the first month. I remember I billed like a crazy number of hours and everything was great and happy. I was going to change. And of course, you know, I, I moved with me from Oceanside. I brought myself <laughs> with me, unfortunately. I didn't leave myself in Oceanside like I should have. I was sleeping with different secretaries at the at the firm. I was going to court hearings and then stopping at massage parlors on the way back. I was going to prostitutes. I was drinking a lot, binge drinking three or four nights a week, and I was smoking cigarettes, and uh, it was just getting worse and worse. And so uh, one night I was I got this uh, DUI, and it was I didn't do anything halfway. I was driving my car at 80, 80 miles per hour with a person in the passenger seat. We rolled off the side of the freeway on the 60 freeway, listening to uh, rock and roll or uh, social distortion at the time, you know, blared up yeah. in my mind and I rolled the car over the freeway. And, um, you know, the, luckily the guy that I was with wasn't hurt too bad. He had a couple uh, broken collarbone and broken toe, but that was it. I mean, not that that's not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, blew, I blew a point two nine. Oh, get uh, out. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, I was extremely drunk. You know, the thing was, is talking about principles is I don't drink and drive. That's not something I do. Right. And yet I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so drunk that I didn't make the decision. I never drank and drive in my life. You know, you're not going to catch me drinking and driving on a point oh seven because I would never make the decision to do that. Right. But when you're a point two nine, you don't make decisions. Your addiction is in control. Absolutely. Your sanity is in control. Yeah. So uh, I had to quit. I was, at the time, I was doing really good at that law firm. I was on the uh, Ecological Protection Committee for Moreno Valley. And I was, my career was all moving up, but that was so humiliating that I had to get out of there. So I once again um, failed up, and I went and got a job at an even better firm in Santa Monica, Van Anton Susamoto, which is a firm. It's no longer there, but it was a big firm out in the water garden out there and uh, making more money and living in a nicer place. And, you know, it was just like, and again, I'm like, oh, this is going to be perfect because I solved my problem. I knew what my problem was. My problem was that I was driving when I was drunk. So I needed to move to a place where you could, you could walk. <laughs> so I moved to Pico and 34th. And there was bars all over the place. There was massage parlors within walking distance, you know, on, on Pico and 34th in Santa Monica. Dude, it sounds like a dream come true for an addict. Yeah, it was. It was awesome. I had this great – I love to smoke on balconies too. I would go home. I never smoked in front of anybody. I was a, I was a closet smoker. So I would come home after a day at work and I'd just be like jonesing for a cigarette. So I'd, I'd smoke a pack of cigarettes and drink. You know, and then I you – know, it was just debauchery. It was, my whole life was just trying to keep it together at the law firm and absolute debauchery. Uh, with the three-headed monster of cigarettes, alcohol, and sex addiction. And all sneaky. Everything sneaky. All on the DL. All by yourself. Everything had to be on the sneak. Everything in the drinking even. I didn't drink with friends. Uh, I didn't want to be around my real friends when I drank. I'd have a beer or two or something maybe. But when I wanted to go to a dark bar by myself, that's how I drank, you know. Um, Seedy. Yeah, CD. I love that word. Yeah. That's how I. Yep. <laughs> that's, 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 that's my jam. CD. <laughs> <laughs> that, that should have been the name of my book. Yeah. <laughs> that's the next one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, unless you, I'll describe what happened the night that 
it all came undone. If, if, if you're ready. <laughs> oh, dude, bring it, man. <laughs> so, uh, July 26, uh, 2003, I had a meeting, uh, scheduled with a really big client that was, that, that was, oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up here. I had failed out of Bennett and Susamoto and I was about to get fired. So I left there and I started a firm with a buddy of mine and we had an office in Pasadena and Century City and my alcoholism and everything got even worse because I, I was making a lot more money and I was my own boss. Yep. So, so I had a lot more time. So we had this meeting with this, with this guy who was flying in from, from um, Singapore and we were going to meet at Brookside Golf Course in Pasadena at a 7 a.m. tea time or 6 a.m. or really early tea time. And I just got home from work and I'm smoking and drinking and I'm saying to myself, okay, just go to bed. You've got to get up for this meeting. Don't go drinking. Don't go drinking. And then I talk myself into it. Okay, I'll just have, I'll just have a couple drinks. So I go up to the Liquid Kitty, which is about three blocks up, dark, seedy bar, and I drank about, I think, uh, 12 Jack and Cokes after having drank at home too and had two packs of cigarettes and I went and do a blackout. I don't remember going into that blackout. I don't remember anything that happened. Most of this I can tell you because of the police report and because of witness accounts. But I walked to an ATM machine and got $100 out. I went to the front of a massage parlor that was on Pico Boulevard, very close to the condo, my condo. And I knocked on the door a bunch of times and woke a bunch of people up. Nobody answered, of course, because it was 3 in the morning. And there's nobody at a massage parlor at 3 in the morning. So I went around the back and I climbed in the window. But the window I climbed in was next to the window of the massage parlor. It was all one solid wall, so it all looked the same. And I climbed into some guy's bathroom took all my clothes off, walked into this guy's friggin' hotel room slash apartment and attacked him. He says I attacked him. He says he woke up from the smell of cigarettes and alcohol to some naked psycho. <laughs> and, uh, funny now, 13 years later, not funny then. Dude, I am and, fucking uh, picturing this and I know the listeners are. <laughs> And he goes crazy because there's a six foot four, two hundred and twenty pound naked guy with a heart on in his apartment. <laughs> and uh, you know, in all seriousness, that guy had every right to kill me. I'm lucky. I'm very glad he didn't, and I'm very glad he didn't get hurt. But um, I, that's the first memory I have is being in a dark room, spinning around, fighting with this guy. And I put him in a chokehold, apparently, and uh, he got free of it. And I went out the window where I came, and he went out the front and chased me down to a yard across the street. They beat the hell out of me. I ran away, half naked, bleeding all over the place. They busted my head open, and the cops came. And, and, and the next thing I knew, I, I woke up in a hospital bed with a doctor stapling my head shut with a giant staple gun. I thought I was in jail, but I was in the Santa – I thought I was in a hospital, but I was in the Santa Monica jail – they had a little hostel room for people like me. And uh, they put me in jail and I called my ex-girlfriend who's a criminal defense attorney and you know, said, hey, come bail me out. And she says, what are you being charged with? And I say, you know, I'm not sure, but I think solicitation of prostitution or something. I'm not sure I was really drunk. And then she shows up and I say, what are, you know, what, what's going on? And she, why aren't you bailing me out? And she says, uh, you're being charged with attempted murder. Oh. And so I didn't have a memory of it. 
at that time, I didn't have any memory of what had happened other than going to the bar, being drunk, and then being in a room, spinning around with some guy yelling. The description, you know, drive. Uh, I, I remember after that going out the room and everything. So, you know, at that point, they bailed me out, or I, I went to jail. They put me. They, I was suicidal. They put me in the fifty-one uh, fifty, the, the loony bin at, at Twin Towers Jail in Los Angeles, and I was just done. I was like, you know what? I wasn't supposed to have a, as successful a life as I had already. You know, I became a lawyer. I've traveled some great places. I've met some great people. I'm done. Ended up getting bailed out into uh, Pasadena Recovery Center, which is a rehab in Pasadena. You're, you're from Pasadena. You've probably heard of that, right? Mm. And um, and I was in there for six months. And slowly but surely, while I was in there, I was in there with, a, at the time, this guy, Bob Forrest, who you're probably familiar with, was uh, working there. He was a van driver. He kind of, he was an atheist and, and a cool guy. And he had a real good spin on 12 steps and Dr. Lee Bloom was there and I kind of like slowly but surely bought in you know I was like well I'm going to kill myself once they sentence me to prison anyway but meanwhile I'm just going to like you know eat macaroni and cheese and play ping pong and go to these meetings you know <laughs> and I was practicing law they didn't disbar me because they don't disbar you until you're actually convicted right so I was fighting the case for two years so I was actually practicing law while in rehab like my partner would bring me cases <laughs> in rehab and tell me like, okay, this is what's going on. What do we do here? What do we do here? And I would do some work there off my laptop. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I always say, I like, I, I got to say, I'm probably the only attorney in California who argued in a, uh, an appellate court case in the second district one day on a lot. I think it was on a Tuesday. And on the Wednesday, I went to my own felony arraignment. <laughs> oh man. So uh, that was the last time that night was the last time I ever drank. Uh, my sex addiction lingered on a little bit after that, but uh, um, that stopped. And uh, the cigarettes took me five more years after that. Anyway, I, I ended up getting disbarred. I ended up getting charged with a bunch of sex crimes. And, and the reason they called they charged me sex crimes was because the theory of the DA was that I had entered into the room with the intent to commit a rape. Obviously, I had got $100 out, which was the, I was going to use for the massage parlor. And I thought I was out of my mind. And I thought I could fight the case, but the bottom line was I was looking at 20 years if I got convicted on everything. Ooh. So I ended, up, I ended up taking a deal. And the deal sent me to Chino Prison for uh, what's called a two-year, what's called a 90-day evaluation. And the deal was I go to Chino for 90 days, they evaluate me, and then they get out and the judge decides uh, where to, whether I go back to prison or whether I get out. I did my 90 days in Chino. And I, you know, I won't go into that whole thing, but it was uh, gnarly as you see in the movies. It Dude, very- Chino, it, it, I've never seen a, a movie or a series where somebody's talking about being in Chino and it's just like murderers and gangbangers and it's like horrific. Yeah, Chino's gnarly. I, before I went in, I actually unfortunately did a little research on it and, and, and found out it's the mo- at the time at least it was the most dangerous prison in the United States. And the reason is, is because it's a structurally failing prison because it's so old. And secondly, because it's where they transfer everybody. So anybody in Southern California that's going to go to prison goes there first. So you get a lot of people who don't care because that's not where they're going to be. Oh, right. So it was very dangerous. And, and I made it out. I didn't get, uh, you know, I got attacked a few times, but but I, I, I was fine. And, and uh, 
the program saved my life in there. You know, I, I went in there with my big book and my 12 and 12, and I read the big book every day, and I prayed and meditated, and and I, you know, I I was I was in. You know, I mean, at that point, I was like 12 steps of saving my life. Yep. I've got a chance at a life. Maybe, yep. you know, we'll see how it goes. And it was kind of like this thing where when you're in there and you're not playing games and people see that you're for real about this recovery because there's a lot of people incarcerated who are addicts. I would say the vast majority of them are addicts. You know, smart criminals generally don't get caught. It's the drunk ones. Right. <laughs> and a lot, I'm not saying everybody, there's some, there's some quote unquote bad people in there, but a lot of them are, were addicts. And when they see that you're serious about your sobriety and you're reading that book and you're not engaging in BS and playing games, you tend to get a little, um, a bit of a ticket, you know, you get a bit of a pass and, right. and really saved my ass while I was in there. I really think that, you know, as I, I'm a firm believer because I've seen it happen a, a bunch of times and they say, you know, expect a miracle. You know, I've seen people beat cancer and I've seen people, you know, go through some severe situations in their lives once they grab hold of recovery. And for me, there's no question about it. You know, God was looking out for you in there. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it was amazing. It was even... People were interested that I go into great detail in my book about those about the uh, time I was incarcerated, and uh, there's no question that um, uh, you know the HP was in effect in there. So, how yeah. long were you in Chino again? I was in uh, Chino for 111 days. Okay, and the way it works is you have to go from uh, LA from Twin Towers, then to Chino, then back to Twin Towers. So, all in all, I was incarcerated for about 120 days. Okay. And then when I got out, I, I went to the courtroom and I had been so, you know, that was two years from the time of the incident until I was, went to, actually a year and nine months from the day of the incident to the day that I was um, incarcerated. It was like a year and nine months from the time I went in and then two years and almost to the date from the day of the incident until I got out. But during that time, I went to meetings every single day. In fact, the judge sentenced me to five meetings a week for five years. So I was actually on a court card for for eight years. Wow, <laughs> dude, that's amazing. So, uh, so we went to the court hearing, which is so. Which, this was really the amazing thing, and I hate to give away everything that's in the book, but that's all right. Um, is that uh, the judge was an alcoholic and said in my sentencing hearing that he was an alcoholic. And the other thing that was so amazing about this was that everybody, the entire courtroom, was packed with people from twelve step programs that were there to support me. So it was a packed room only. And the judge was like, we've never had this many people in the courtroom and we've never had this many letters of support. Wow. And, and of course, you know, with that and I had, I had no relapse and they were testing me and I had, you know, I was sincerely in the program. This wasn't some BS where I was like playing the game. That a lot of people play. I was, I was in cause you know, last house on the block. Yeah. It doesn't get any more last house on the block when you're a disbarred lawyer, two-strike felon, registered sex offender. Ugh. I mean, it's, that's as bad as it gets. So, yeah. so I was like, this is it. I got nothing else. You know, This is it. So I'm in. You know, And, and uh, they showed up for me. The judge let me go that day. You know, I've got this wreckage, horrible wreckage, or at least, it, at least on paper it looks awfully horrible. But uh, the amazing thing is that my life has been just amazing since then. And it's just, you know, 
the thing about the, it's just such a miracle. You're so lucky to have 12, you know, to be in the program. People are so, I don't mean you, I mean one, so lucky. I am so lucky to be in the program because it's like a, it's like a way of living that works in rough going, as they say, you know, it's like, it's like I got no way to live. And then you hand me this new system and I'm like, oh, here it is. This is, this is it. Open up the book and you know what to do. Pray in the morning, you know, pray at night, pray in the morning and do the in-between, go to meetings, help people be of service and everything will work out. And it does. Everything works out, you know, and it's, it's a, it's been a beautiful thing. I've been sober for 13 years, been out of, you know, I got out two years afterwards and my life is just, um, you know, my life's amazing. I've had amazing jobs. I've written this book that's done really, really well. It's, you know, it's Amazon top hundred, uh, uh, on the memoirs list, which is amazing. And, um, how long has the book been out? Since July, right? No, August. I think since August. Of last, last year? August. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. When I first pitched the book, it was it was the worst possible time in the world to come out with a book. It was right after the recession hit. Uh, or it was two years after, but we hadn't recovered yet. And Million Little Pieces, that whole scandal had come out. And so a lot of publishers were like kind of walking away from those type of stories. And even though I had this kind of amazing story, most people walked away. I thought it wouldn't happen because I had a lot of connections because I knew a lot of people in the program who had written these who had written memoirs and I had some Hollywood connections and stuff, but I was just getting the door shut on me over and over. So I started my own publishing company, published it under that, and I'm actually taking on some other authors now. And uh, it was the best thing I could possibly have done because, I mean, just financially, I make, I make all the money off my book. And secondly, I control the book. I, I had complete control over it. I controlled the editing, the whole process. And uh, I can set the price so I don't have to sell it for such a high price that people don't buy it. And it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. It's like one of those things where you think it's a bad thing and it turned out to be like the best thing, you know. So do you have – so now you have your own publishing company? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a small press. It's just, you know, my fiancé and I. But we're, we're um, in the process of putting out a book that uh, has nothing to do with recovery. It's just a – it's an art book. And then, um, you know, we're, we're looking at different authors and stuff. People, we want to find people that we think are, are, are good writers uh, in the art world or in the 12-step recovery world that kind of fall in the cracks. They're not getting picked up by the really big uh, publishers because that, that market's really shrinking down. You know, they, it's, it's kind of like movies. They make less and less of the big ones. And, right. So, so now, because this is the most important part of your story right here, right now, because like you just said, I have so many people in the uh, private accountability group, the Facebook private accountability group, and you hear them in there talking about that resistance to, the, to go to meetings, that resistance to connect with the, with the 12-step fellowship. I don't know any other way to do this thing. If I hadn't found 12-step recovery, I would be dead, okay? That's the amount of, of drugs that I was doing. Uh, I could not stop. You know, there wasn't any on and off switch. It was every single day. And once I found the program, it's like you said, somebody handed me a guide, a manual for living, and I just had to apply this in my life. Um, but it's that first step. It's that initial first step that you have to just be just wrecked. And in your particular case... You're disbarred, you know. You lose your license. You end up in jail. Uh, you've got a criminal record, and now 
you talk like your life is beyond your wildest dreams. So, so what? So for for now, how is it that you are earning a living? And you know, what what is your life like today financially after after losing your license? Well, it was rough going at first, you know, and um, but it was like you said, you know, you just do one step at a time. And I, you know, I worked for a client at once. I went into the entertainment business for a while and started as a PA and then kind of worked my way up to some production design stuff. And then eventually I got an unbelievable thing happened is I got hired as a contract manager for one of the largest steel companies in the world, a commercial metals company. And it was insane. My friend worked there and, and she told me about the job. She said, you'd be perfect. And I'd be, yeah, I'd be perfect. I, you know, I used to be a lawyer. I could be a contract manager, but I have a, I'm a two strike felon. I'm a disbarred lawyer. Are you freaking crazy? Like, why are you bothering me with this crap? So I went in there, I interviewed, they loved me, you know, for the people out there, you know, if you're a hardcore 12 stepper, it's hard not to love you as an employer, right? Because you're going to show up every day yep. and work your butt off. Yep. You're honest. You're not going to steal from them. I mean, we're good employees, right? And uh, so I showed up, and they loved me, and, and uh, they did a criminal background. They were going to do a criminal background check. So I, I told them, I was straight up with them. I said, you know, I, I was, I was uh, convicted of a, of a violent felony assault that occurred during a blackout. I have a DUI, and but I've been sober for, at the time, I think it was five years or six years. And, uh, you know, here's letters of recommendation. Here's exactly what happened, blah, blah, blah. So they, and I said, here's the other thing. Here's the catch. I said, I need a letter from you guys giving me this offer because I have a bunch of entertainment jobs lined up and if I have to turn those down. So they gave me the letter. Then they got the criminal background check and they really dove in and saw the details of what happened. And they were like, oh, crap. <laughs> but here's the thing. This was right before the collapse, right? So you're familiar with this because you're in the mortgage. Oh, business. yeah. This is right before the collapse, okay? So – this company was a small company that had been bought by a giant company. But they were making so much money that the big company let them do whatever the hell they wanted because they just, as long as you keep sending us tons of money. So this is Fontana Steel, the guys that did most of the, like the Staples Center and all the big company, all the big steel projects downtown. So they let them hire whoever they wanted. And so when they got the criminal background check, they were like, oh, my God, we can't not hire you because we, we already have this letter of intent. But we can't send this criminal background check to corporate. They'll cut our heads off. So, <laughs> so they had to hire me. Now, the joke is on, you know, I mean, it, it was a good thing. I was a great employee. I, didn't, I worked my butt off for them. I was super grateful. And, and uh, it was the best thing that happened because I made a lot of money and, and I worked there. And, but after about three years, you know, the construction industry got worse and worse and worse and worse. Eventually, I got laid off and I got a um, compensation plan because I was a um, regional contract manager, which is not super high in the company, but pretty high. And uh, I lived off that and I wrote my book and I did a little investing. And I, now I have a couple businesses that involve credit, um, kind of boring stuff, but just like credit stuff. And those are kind of like the pay the bills and the book. Um, the book pays some bills and, and I do legal research for various attorneys and stuff. So it's, it's kind of weird. I used to be so scared. Like it would be like one job, you know, I'm so used to having a job that just every week you get this check and, but kind of the East side, Los Angeles way of living of, you know, not having a regular day job. I, 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 I kind of love it. So I just get work here and there and it just pays the bills and it's, it's awesome. Like, you know, 
it's funny. I remember this guy telling me when I went to a party, he'd tell me, he's a, he goes, you know how many books you're going to sell when you self-publish? He goes, how many friends do you have? Divide that by two. <laughs> <laughs> and now I sell that many books in one day. So that's wild. So that's, so that's awesome because, you know, and it was, uh, I had a lot of help with the book and a lot of people pitched in and I followed it. I did what they tell you in AA, right? They, you follow the advice that they tell you, listen. Yes. So people told me, get a professional editor, get a professional story editor, get a professional book cover designer, you know, don't chintz, you know? And I, so I did it all right and it ended up turning out the way it turned out. So that's, that's your question. That's beautiful, man. And that's exact. That's exactly the answer I wanted. I want the listeners to hear this. Um, that resistance to change. I mean, seriously, there is a magic that happens. It's just a magic because there's no way to explain it. You do the deal. You work the steps. You go to meetings. More importantly, you give back and you do service. And all of a sudden, things just present themselves. You know, you just walk into things effortlessly. All right. And so when people, when, when uh, newcomers come in and they'll say things to me like, oh man, okay, yeah, no, um, no, I can't make 90 meetings in 90 days because now that I'm sober, I got to get my job back and I got to spend more time with my wife and, you know, I got to drop my kids off at school and I got all this stuff and I got to get this back. And I go, okay, man, well, let me know how it works out for <laughs> Call you. Me when you're- Call me when you're ready. Yeah, because <laughs> right. the reality is, is that that's that you know they're still running the show and they don't have any idea that there is a, a a power greater than themselves that's physically at work. It is at work. I believe it. I'm listening to your story. There's no question about it. You, you know, you're probably happier now than you've ever been in your entire life. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. Because it's just like I, I I do what I. I always had great principles. I could show you a list of my principles that I had when I was doing the worst shit you could imagine. Uh-huh. Those are the same principles. I, I did not want to breach those, but I did. The difference between me then and now is only one thing, and that is I no longer breach those yes. principles. I, I live by those. If, if I say I'm going to show up somewhere, I show up. If I need to do something, I do it. I'm of service. You know, somebody asked me to speak, I speak. Or, you know, it's not like you're saying or anything, but you have this. You have these principles, and you just follow them. You know, you go to the, you go to the meetings. I, I'm grateful. I don't know how else I could have lived. I'm sure I would have died eventually. I didn't yes. this program. I was pretty close to it that night. And I was pretty close to it the night that I had my DUI. You know, I rolled a rolled a car over at 80 miles per hour. But now it's like and the the great thing about Sprite, maybe some of the other maybe this helps some of the others, is like you age backwards for a while. Yeah. You know, I mean I'm smoking, yeah. drinking, eating like crap. Uh I kind of did the Jerry Stall, you know, coming at midnight like uh he would he would be on heroin, but also run and juice. But you know, I kind of did that a little bit too. You know, but because so I, I was a, I was an athlete and I, I was a vegetarian and stuff. But you know, I also had a kind of a fast food thing I did. But now, yeah. like um, pescatarian, somewhere between pescatarian and vegan. You know, I don't smoke anymore. I exercise consistently. You know, and it's like I feel so good. I mean, I've never felt this. I didn't. I feel younger now. I'm 45. I'm in better shape now, and I feel younger now than I did when I was 21. Oh, and I get it, dude. Awesome. I get it, man. And the reality is, is that you have a purpose. You always had a purpose. God had a vision for you that you had no idea, and it took you going through what you went through 
to get to this point right here where you could carry your message just like me and just like so many. You know, don't don't wait till it's jails, institutions, and death. Right, Joseph? Yeah. <laughs> it takes what it takes. But, you know, but all that, that, they say it takes what it takes, but they also said your bottom is when you stop digging. And I had I had a friggin' bathtub. Right? I had a backhoe when I was digging my bottom. So Dude, but, I you know, love so a lot of people I always say, you know, there's I, I'll say to like sponsees, I'll be like, you know, you, you you feel sorry for me because I had this bottom. There's a guy who who drank one time and is dead, and then there's another guy who's who's uh, keeps on, you know, getting away with it. You know, there's and there's guys that drink once and go to A and they're cool, and there's guys that drink once and die. So you know, it's God works in mysterious ways. I don't know how it works, but I know I hit my bottom, and I hope that people are listening to this that they're like. Uh, weighing their options and try it out Oof. it doesn't work it doesn't work what'd you do you missed a few nights of drinking right <laughs> <laughs> we will gladly re- we'll gladly refund your your misery <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly all right joseph let's start closing up buddy because oh my god i could we could talk for hours I, I love this i'm loving this interview oh thanks um let's see here i normally ask a few questions here uh, I'm not going to ask you the first one. The first one is what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Because it was nothing. You know, <laughs> you went in 100%. Here's the question I want to know. When did it hit you? When did you have that aha moment, you know, when you first got into recovery, when you accepted you were powerless over drugs and alcohol and sex addiction, but for the first time, you had developed the hope that you could recover? Well, uh, one was when I was, um, I was so stressed out, you know, going through all that stuff and I was in rehab and then I got out of rehab and I was sober living and I had to go to court therapy. And, uh, I was so stressed out, uh, that one time I went to a massage parlor after the incident and I was talking to the therapist and I, I just blurted it out and told the therapist I did it. And she just lost, she was like, what are you? effing out of your mind like she was this really mild-mannered person she was like are you effing out of your mind are you stupid and I was just like whoa you know and I was like yeah I'm doing like that's craziness though that's one and then with the cigarettes I always tell people like the alcohol I didn't experience the powerless maybe in some way that other people did because I had to quit because I had like I said I had, a, I had a gun to my head yeah so I never really got to that point where I really wanted to stop drinking I, I, I love blacking out and everything I knew you know despite the negative consequences I never got to the point where, where I was trying to stop I was trying to control it a bit but I never tried to stop but with cigarettes you know you're five years you're five years into into your 12-step meetings and you're and you're going outside killing yourself it's hard not to go, wait a second, this is a substance that's killing me that I can't stop. What the hell? So that was a powerless moment too, and I, I had to go to another program for that. And so those two incidents probably are what led me to really believe I was powerless. And then, uh, you know, like that moment where you're just like, God, I can't do this on my own. I don't know how quitting is going to help me stop, but I give up. It's in your hands. I'm done fighting because I can't beat this gorilla up in this ring, you know. It's like when you're in a boxing, you know, you get out of the friggin' ring, you're not going to win, you know. And that's and it happened, and it was it's some kind of weird magic that you can't really put words on, but it exists, because I've seen it. I've seen it myself, and I've seen it in sponsees and people in the rooms where they just, one day, they like, they have this, they have this powerless where they just give up. They, they just give up, and in that giving up, they gain this power. It is amazing. 
And it's beautiful to watch, you know, when somebody gets it and they're like, and all they say is like, I get it. I get it, man. Like, I am so done with this shit. I'm like, I'm never going to do this again. And it's that realization that as long as they feel as though they've got one more, like they can control it, like they've got everything under control, even just one aspect of it, they know they're going to go back out. They have to just be like, I remember it. I remember it. I went to my sponsor and I just said, I will do whatever it is you tell me to do. Yeah. Because I... I'm done. I'm I'm so done, right? And I just remember feeling so desperate. It's so yeah. much pain, right? So, man, yeah, that's that's that spiritual awakening that that so many of us have that you're just like I'm I'm done. I'm done. Um well, I mean, obviously there's your book. Um are there any other books you you could recommend to our newcomers? But uh well, actually first tell us a little bit more about the book cuz I don't know if we covered it too much. Well, Straight pepper diet. They'll uh, our our people with time will know what that what that means, and those who don't um, read the in, read the flap. You know, it's a good read. Uh, I pri- I was able to price it so low that you can't can't not read it. Uh, <laughs> I wrote it with the intention because I know the type of books I like are books that are page turners. Yes. So if you've ever read like Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Or even like some John Grisham stuff, even though it's not like quote unquote literature. I, that's kind of the style I wrote it in. It's kind of like hard boiled, uh, very quick moving. So a lot of people say they it's 400 pages. A lot of people say they've read it in one or two nights. It's entertaining. You know, it's a story of it's a story. It's just a it's an AA story, really, right? It's it's the back of the book, but it's just a little longer and a little bit more dramatic. So, <laughs> and you know, I hope it helps some people. People have said it's helped them. I hope it helps them, and not just as a as a showing what can happen and the recovery that follows. And then uh, the book that I that changed my that really changed me. I know that maybe some of your listeners, you know, you always hear this thing about I, I have a problem with the God, I have a problem with the God thing, you know. And um, I never really had a problem with the God thing, but I go to Agape and I'm a science of mind guy and uh, a friend of mine gave me this thing called You by Ernest Holmes. Um, this thing called you by Ernest Holmes. And that's one of those books where you can just turn it to any page and just read some truth, you know, kind of like, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous yeah. textbook where you can just turn it to any page and you're like, Oh, that's true. And there's nothing better than the truth. You know, like when you hear the truth, you're just like, it's kind of like power. Now when I was driving out to my mom's, day, I heard that I was listening to the CD of power now. And that guy basically took one day at a time and, and turned it into an empire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but is there anything truer or more powerful than you you only have power over right here right now so yeah. think about the past and think about the future and doing you no good all it's doing is blowing right now you know so that's kind of way that book the thing this thing called you it's by Ernest Holmes who's the who founded Science of Mind and who has a whole bunch of books but that's the book that I think is most accessible that he wrote beautiful beautiful and, uh, Dr Michael Beckwith uh, Spiritual Liberation is another good book. And uh, Chuck sees uh, uh, new pair of glasses. New pair of glasses. Mm-hmm. So yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Um, it, do you have your book in in uh, Audible yet? Or yeah, in yeah, Audible? yeah, yeah. I I did the recording on it. Uh, it's in my voice, but I don't. I put a nose strip on, so it's not as nasally as this. <laughs> <laughs> I got that SoCal drawl, that nasal SoCal drawl. But in the book, it's a little bit better. And I put the 
put the nasal strip on. The engineer insisted. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, I'm going to get that for sure because that's how I like to read my books. I like to listen to oh, them for sure, cool. for sure. Um, so what is the best suggestion you have ever received? One X at a time. One X at a time. You know, we hear, you know, whether you call it the power now, whether you call it one day at a time, whether you call it, you know, take it easy one, you know, it, it really comes down to like, you can handle this thing that's right in front of you. Just break it up and do whatever piece you need to break it up to do. And when you first get sober and you're just overwhelmed by the amount of wreckage you have, I mean, imagine the wreckage I had and just overwhelming. And when they told me that in rehab, I was like, okay, that is a beautiful mind trick. I'm going to be like, get up, put your shoes on. Okay, I'm done with that. No. <laughs> Go eat breakfast. You know, if you need to break it up with that, you'd be like, pour the orange juice, do this. And then when it gets to the harder stuff, you know, you might need to break it down a little bit more. Like, okay, don't don't call the client, dial the number, you know, whatever it takes, but you can do one thing at a time. I don't even like one day at a time. That's too much. One thing at a time, whatever it is, just break it down, you know. It's it's in all different things. In golf, the the best psychologist in golf, Bob Rotella, he says the exact same thing. It's just it's just one day at a time, one shot at a time. He says that to the best players on the PGA tour, one shot at a time. If you're thinking about the shot you just blew or the difficult shot coming up, you're gonna blow this shot. So one shot at a time. And he just sends him a bill for a thousand dollars an hour. (laughs) So one X at a time. One X at a time. Well, my last question is, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? Lean in. You know, just give them another one. Lean in. Like, just lean into this. Whatever it is. If it's your problem, these problems that you think you have, lean into them. The program's there for you. There are people that are amazing in this program, like you, like there's rooms full of them, and, and they're just amazing. And if you ask for help, they will help you. And if they don't, they'll send you to someone who can. And if you just put the effort in and lean into it, whatever it is, you'll get the, you know, you'll get the solution in the rooms. So I just say lean into it. Damn. This is great stuff, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> Gold. Listeners, I hope you're going to have to listen to this one twice. Seriously. Value bombs. You know, the cool thing was I, I – I told I was so excited about this interview. I told a few of my friends that I was going to be interviewing you, right? And they're like, "I'm not sure I know who Joseph Naus is," right? But I'd say straight pepper diet, and they go, "Oh, out of the big book? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they got that one quick." Oh, nice. Page sixty-nine. Wink. <laughs> Guys, straight pepper diet. Get it read it, buy it, or listen to it. Uh, Joseph, what's the best way that our listeners can get a hold of you? The, my website uh, for the book is straightpepperdietmemoir.com, or I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, Twitter is Joseph W. Naus, N-A-U-S. I'm going to have all that on the show notes, guys. Just go to the show notes, click on it. You'll find them there and the book. Wow, what an adventure. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thanks for all the service you are to all your uh, listeners, service you're doing to all your listeners. Man, you know, it's just, I always say the same thing, HP, baby. He gave me a <laughs> gift, and uh, I'm just, I am not the well, but I certainly do enjoy being the pipe every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> 
Folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.